Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. We've reached week 13 and the moment when I read my first, but certainly not my last, Mills and Boone. This week's book is Under the Stars of Paris by Mary Birchall, a stalwart of the Mills and Boone stable from the 1930s through to the 1970s, when her style fell somewhat out of fashion thanks to the focus on the occasional kiss rather than a full-on bedroom scene. At school, we played lacrosse. I've never been suited to team sports, still less a sport which demanded that whilst running you manipulate a metre-long stick with a catgut net, throwing and catching a ball. I remember being issued with my first lax stick and the tin of gunk we needed to rub into the strings of the net at least once a week so that it became malleable and held the ball better. You then needed to practice first running up and down the field, cradling a ball in the net without dropping it, a skill I never mastered, before graduating to the dizzy heights of chucking and catching and scoring goals. At none of these did I excel. After yet another miserable afternoon spent in the wind and the rain, relegated to the pitiable group of girls who would never, ever be selected for an actual team game, I went back to the changing room, shivering, thighs mottled with cold, utterly fed up. The changing rooms were at the end of a long corridor, mainly populated with six-form studies. It was a dark and dingy room with internal windows onto a small courtyard. There were numbered hooks where we hung our clothes and the lap sticks, with wooden benches under which were metal mesh cages where we stored our muddy boots. I sat down, unlaced my boots and bunged them in the cage and saw, wedged between the wooden bench and the metal mesh, a slim book. I levered it out and found it was called Under the Stars of Paris. The cover had a 1960s look featuring a man in white evening jacket and black tie with a blonde girl on one side in a floofy white dress looking down on a brunette in some kind of turquoise chiffon affair, both with very bouffant hairdos. One brunette, one blonde. It is a simple but ludicrous Cinderella-style tale. Young Anthea is on her uppers in Paris, where she has fled after her widowed father has married a disagreeable and unwelcoming woman, followed in short order by her fiancé ditching her for a seductress called Eve. She is also running out of money. So, as one does, she decides to spend her last 50 francs on getting her hair done. And in the salon, as her lovely blonde curls are being pinned and tucked, she is approached by the woman who runs the Atelier Florian, one of Paris's leading couturiers. The careless Claudine, one of Florian's leading mannequins, has inconveniently broken her leg. So she cannot walk in the main show. And several key designs, not least the centrepiece, a bridal gown, were inspired by her look which is uncannily like Anthea's. Fortunately, Anthea is exactly the same size and colouring as Claudine, and Florian takes her on. From rock bottom, Anthea thrives in a new and fascinating world, is able to support herself and begins her recovery from the failed engagement to the egocentric mark. There are complications, a jealous rival, Eloise. She bumps into a young English diplomat, Roger, who is clearly smitten by her, though she doesn't seem to spot this. And he, it turns out, is cousin to Eve, Mark's new fiancé. Mark and Eve both turn up in Paris and are stunned when they attend Florian's show and see Anthea on the catwalk. And Florian himself is an enigmatic figure, slim, elegant and autocratic. 
Around eight to ten critical weeks of Anthea's life are covered in 50,000 words. And of course, she ends up in Florian's arms. Despite his having shown little or no particular interest in her, nor she in him, until the final couple of chapters of the book. Even as I raced through it, sitting in the lax changing room, I knew it was balderdash, folderol, nonsense. But. But. I was a sad and cynical child. I didn't believe in love or marriage or any of that tosh. In my world, love did not last. Husbands and wives did not stay together and there was no such thing as romance. Until Mary Birchall's world collided with mine. Under the Stars of Paris was, even in 1977, an incredibly dated and old-fashioned book. Florian must touch Anthea's part and parcel of cutting and fitting his designs, but the closest they get to a torrid embrace is a short peck on the cheek in a taxi about two-thirds of the way through the book. It was written in 1954, although I had no idea of that at the time, and it reflects Birchall's two obsessions, clothes and opera. It was only recently that I discovered more about Birchell and wished I had known as a 13-year-old what I have learned about her now. It would have made me much less furtive and embarrassed to be an avid fan first of her books and then of other Mills and Boone writers. Mary Birchell was the pen name for Ida Cook, who, along with her sister Louise, was a quite incredible woman. The Cooks started work in the 1920s as secretaries. They fell in love with opera, first recordings, and then live performance. From a quiet, middle-class family, the two sisters appear to have been best friends as well. They were devoted to one another and their shared passion for first Italian and then German opera. They scrimped and saved so that they could take a holiday in New York to see their favourite sopranos sing live. And then they saved and scrimped again so that they could begin travelling in Europe. Louise was the administrator for the journey and Ida made all their clothes to save money. Meanwhile, Ida moved from the civil service into journalism and began writing first short stories and then longer novellas until she was approached to start writing for Mills and Boone. And this meant that the sisters no longer had to scrimp and save quite so hard. They spent their twenties building an incredible network of operatic friends, for they educated themselves thoroughly and were genuinely knowledgeable fans, which generated much respect in the performers they met. And then, one of those couples of opera singers, Clement Krauss and Viorizia Juliak, enjoined them to start helping particular people to get out of Germany. This was the first of several years helping as many people escape from Nazi Germany as they could, mainly Jewish, but not necessarily always. They did this directly by using Ida's money from her writing to guarantee individuals and arrange for visas for them and their families, and also indirectly by speaking widely about how best to help refugees, raising money and finding other guarantors and sponsors. They travelled weekend after weekend to Germany and Austria, watching operas and concerts, interviewing people who needed to escape and making the difficult decision of who they could support. 
They smuggled jewels and furs out of Germany to provide the people they rescued with funds, and they lobbied consuls in Frankfurt and Berlin to expedite visas. Right up until the fortnight before war was declared, they were busy with this work and heartbroken when they discovered it was too late for some of the people they had worked so hard to sponsor. It is fascinating to reconcile the undeniably cheesy, simple tales that Birchall wove year in, year out, and the dogged determination that it took to provide safe passage for nearly 30 individual cases directly, and indirectly many more. When you read Birchall's romances, though, it becomes clear. Her heroines are often ingenue, but they are no fools. They rarely give way to despair or self-pity despite quite tricky family situations. And they are never afraid to stand up for themselves or to identify quite correctly when the heroes they love display flaws or faults. Florian, for example, uses Anthea to get back at a former mistress. Anthea is furious and challenges his attempt to manipulate her into an unkind and ungenerous act. Additionally, her heroines are competent, hard-working, ready to take on the seemingly insurmountable difficulties. Often singers, these young women are clear-sighted about the dedication and determination required to be a truly outstanding performer. These are the qualities that make these young women attractive to men who are often depicted as demanding, fierce and impatient. Everyone in the Birchall verse has high expectations. There was a terrific essay in Granter by the writer Louise Carpenter, who researched the lives of Ida and Louise, and there's also been a talk of a film of their activities. The link is below. The drama of these two spinsters running the Gestapo's gauntlet is inspiring, but I wonder whether there would be an honest way to tell their story. In her own autobiography, Ida Cook is determinedly down-to-earth and modest. The book focuses mainly on the adoration and admiration she and Louise felt for a number of opera stars of the pre-war period, many of whom became true friends to the sisters, inviting them to stay as house guests on their trips to the United States. There is nothing of Birchall's writing life which she claims was purely about making money. However, interestingly, she could write fast and competently only when driven by a cause. When the war came and the refugee work died away, she struggled to produce romances, even though there was higher than ever demand for them. It was only after the war, when the Cooks became involved in the immense work of helping the millions of displaced people find some kind of future, that inspiration hit again. For me, Mills and Boone, and Birchall in particular, provided a template to explore what love was not and could not be. These books were truly addictive, and thanks to the almost industrial scale of production, there was always at least one book a month I really enjoyed. Many I did not. Heroines too wimpy, heroes a bit rapey, story meh. There is a tension between wishing that romantic love could be true and the knowledge that love in reality is not really romantic at all, but messy and difficult. But a quick read of A Mills and Boone can resolve that. The pleasure arises when the last piece of the jigsaw slips into place and the two people who ought to be together actually do come together. It's deeply satisfying both for the happy ever after alongside that lingering sense that this is a fantastic and implausible bit of nonsense.
The pleasures of escapism lie in knowing that for a brief moment you have escaped. Join me next week for a look at another book that had to be confiscated because I kept rereading it. This time I'll be looking at a biography of the great French singer Edith Piaf, a combination of high romance and triumph and tragedy. Meet me then. Mm-hmm.